I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is episode number nine of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking in 1951. In this episode, we're still in the section called Mary Kenworthy and the Railroads, 1873 to 1893. Mrs. Kenworthy and the rest of the women of Washington got the vote in 1883. The territorial legislature amended the code by omitting the word male in the section dealing with suffrage. The measure was supported by the Good Templars, a lodge then active in the political reform movement. They lobbied for woman suffrage because they felt women would, as they put it, vote moral. The bill passed the House easily and squeaked through the Senate by one vote. For the next four years, until the law was overturned by the territorial Supreme Court, the women had full political rights as voters, jurors, and office holders. Their delight in citizenship is reflected in the memoirs of a Bellingham woman who wrote, quote, I took my turn on petty and grand jury, served on election boards, walked in perfect harmony to the polls by the side of my staunch Democratic husband, and voted the Republican ticket, not feeling any more out of my sphere than when assisting my husband to develop the resources of our country, unquote. The enfranchisement of the women did not make the municipal election of 1884 any less bitter, although no women stood for office. The candidates used charges of corruption, incompetence, and favoritism. Quote, one word about the police court, unquote, an out candidate declared. Quote, I say and I challenge contradiction that there never was such a rotten nest anywhere on the face of God's footstool as the police court of the city of Seattle, unquote. The campaign was fought against the background of the depression that gripped the town after the collapse of the Villard boom. Though Seattle was still growing rapidly, jobs were scarce and money was tight. Nationally, the Democrats behind Grover Cleveland were about to win the presidency for the first time since the Civil War. The women got their baptism of political fire in a noisy campaign in which the businessman's ticket was battling to hold City Hall against the assaults of the people's ticket. The businessman's man for mayor was John Leary, a Canadian-born lawyer turned promoter. He'd been one of the leaders of the abortive Seattle and Walla Walla Railroad project, had recently purchased control of the Seattle Post, and was half-owner of the company that furnished the town with water. The businessman's candidate promised economies in the city administration and the creation of an economic climate attractive to outside capital. The people's people were for reform. They wanted to do away with vice and corruption, which they feared were widespread among their fellow citizens. Their oratory was directed toward two groups, labor and women. To labor, they promised protection against exploitation and fair treatment in police court. To the women, they promised civic righteousness. The town was ripe for a little righteousness. The Skid Road was rapidly acquiring a reputation for toughness rivaled only by the Barbary Coast. A considerable portion of the newcomers to Seattle were men who had been working on the railroad construction gangs, tough men, alone, and with little sense of civic responsibility. Some of them settled down and became good citizens. Some found rooms in the dives that had sprung up along the Skid Road. As the population grew more congested on the flatland south of Mill Street, more and more establishments opened to cater to their tastes. There had been periodic efforts to clean up the lava bed, as the district was called during this period. Grand juries refused to indict the operatives of body houses, and Sheriff Wyckoff, the man who had succeeded Maynard as blacksmith, was always looking the other way. But once in the early 70s, the Illahee had been closed in Seattle briefly without the services of a brothel. This state of affairs had been achieved by a stratagem on the part of the county commissioners. Having come into possession of a valuable farm, which had been owned by a man who died without heirs, the commissioners traded the farm to the new owner of the Illahi and in return received the whorehouse. Since the farm was much the more valuable property at that time, the trade was something of a bribe given the proprietor by public officials to induce him to abandon his traffic in women. 
The commissioners and the whoremonger were pleased with their deal, but the courts weren't. A judge decided that the county had no right to make such a trade, and the deal was called off. But while in possession of the Illahi, the commissioners had thoughtfully had the house torn down. Other establishments, bigger if not better, soon took its place. The denizens of the lava bed were not only immoral, but sometimes criminal. The area naturally came to harbor a considerable number of burglars and bandits and strong-arm men, as well as tarts and pimps and gamblers. Crimes of violence increased even faster than the population. On the night of January 17, 1882, George Reynolds, a middle-aged businessman, was walking home after dark. Two armed robbers stepped from behind a tree and told him to put up his hands. He reached for his back pocket. They shot him and ran away. Reynolds died two hours later. Someone started ringing the fire bell. When the men of the town had assembled, they were told about the attack. They formed a vigilance committee and began a citywide hunt for the killers. One of the searchers saw a man's foot protruding from a pile of hay on a wharf. The haystack was surrounded, the foot seized. Two men were found hiding in the hay. Some of the citizenry were eager to hang the two men from the wharf without further formality. Sheriff Wyckoff drew his revolver and persuaded the posse that it would be better to wait until it was proved the two men had done something more criminal than sleep in a haystack on the night of a murder. The prisoners were taken to jail. The posse took the men's shoes and compared them with impressions found in soft mud near the scene of the murder. The shoes matched the impressions nearly enough to convince most of Seattle that the prisoners were guilty. The next morning, the men were brought before Justice of the Peace Samuel Coombs. The preliminary hearing was held in Yesler's Pavilion, and the place was packed with angry citizens, some of them armed. Among those present, but unarmed, was the ailing Roger Sherman Green, Chief Justice of the Territorial Supreme Court, who had climbed out of bed to make sure the two men got a fair hearing. The prisoners offered no defense other than to deny guilt. Justice Coombs turned them over to the deputy sheriffs, ordering that they be held without bail until they could be tried. From the back of the hall came a shout, Let's get em! and the crowd surged forward. As the deputies drew their revolvers, a door behind them opened and a group of men rushed them from the rear and disarmed them. Somebody threw a sheet over Judge Green's head. Others seized the prisoners, hustled them outside, and dragged them down the alley to Front and James. The mob placed a pair of railings between the forks of two maple trees, tossed ropes over the railings, slipped nooses over the men's heads, and strung them up. Just as the prisoners were hauled clear of the ground, Judge Green pushed his way through the mob and ran to the struggling men. He pulled out a pocket knife and slashed at the ropes. The crowd dragged him from the scene. The prisoners died. A lust for law and order, or for blood, seized the citizenry. At one o'clock in the afternoon, someone rang the fire bell three times. Five hundred men assembled in front of the city hall, chopped down the door to the jail, overpowered the guards, and took from his cell a man accused of having killed a policeman three months earlier. They lynched him, too. Soon after the lynching, Sheriff Wyckoff dropped dead. His friends said he was broken-hearted over the failure of his men to protect their prisoners. Wyckoff was widely mourned, but few grieved for the victims of the mob. The coroner's jury, made up of prominent citizens, investigated the death of the man who had killed the policeman and reported that, though it could not guess who had killed him, quote, substantial and speedy justice has been subserved. The grand jury refused to indict anyone for the triple killings. Only Judge Green continued to protest. Quote, those hangmen were in revolt against Magna Carta, he said. The lynchers were co-criminal with the lynched. Many of the actors were professed Christians. Unwittingly, they were illustrating the doctrine of original sin and total depravity. That lynching set a bad example to other communities and to posterity. The pernicious example of Seattle citizens still remains and will continue to remain a widely approved but fallacious precedent to invite 
and sophistically to justify or excuse, here and elsewhere, future similar disorder. Unquote. His prediction came true. Two years after the lynchings, the memory of the bodies swinging from the scantlings between the Great Maples had ceased to deter criminals. Conditions were worse than ever in the lava bed. Much of the appeal of the people's ticket in 1884 lay in the promise of its spokesmen that they would tighten up on saloons in general and lava bed establishments in particular. They claimed the city administration was in alliance with the, quote, rum vendors and pink cuff hoodlums. And there's a footnote that says pink cuffs refers to the pink shirts often worn by West Coast gamblers. Mary Kenworthy introduced the speaker at a people's mass meeting one warm July afternoon, and she led the applause as he described John Leary, the water company president, as, quote, the candidate of alcohol and aqua pura. Who are the prime movers in the businessman's movement, the populist orator demanded. Why, it's S. Baxter, a wholesale liquor dealer, who sells to those lava bed dealers by the jug and W.A. Jennings. I visited the businessman's convention, and among the businessmen I saw a banker, one of the first bankers who went into that business in the town. Fourteen years ago I saw him carrying on his banking business on a public sidewalk in Seattle on the 4th of July. I refer to Barney Crossan, a member of the Protective Association and a proprietor of a faro bank. I thought at first it was all whiskey, but I found it was all water. Bailey Gatzert turned out for the meeting for the first time since Beriah Brown was nominated for mayor, 1878. Mr. Leary and Mr. Gatzert are the principal stock owners of the Spring Hill Water Company. I want the city to buy plenty of water, and I want it bought from the Spring Hill Water Company, but I don't want John Leary, as mayor, to sign a contract with John Leary as president of the Spring Hill Water Company for such supply. Then the speaker introduced a new element into the campaign. He pointed out that notwithstanding the fact that Mayor Struve, one of the best lawyers in the territory, had been serving as mayor, the city had just made the mistake of constructing the Jackson Street grade across government land. After the grade was made, the city learned it could not tax or confiscate the government land to raise money to redeem the script it had issued to pay for the construction. There was $87,000 worth of Jackson grade script outstanding. A large part of it was held by the Puget Sound Bank, of which the McNaught brothers, James and Joseph, were stockholders. Joe was running the city council. His brother James had issued a statement saying that the taxpayers at large must redeem the script instead of the people whose property benefited by the improvement. Quote, many good lawyers differ with him, the orator remarked dryly. Then he said, Wa Chong, the contractor, holds $10,000 worth of Jackson Street script, and an attempt is being made to saddle this amount off onto you and me and other taxpayers. Thus was the Chinese question introduced somewhat obliquely into Seattle politics. John Leary was elected in spite of the watery mud splashed on him by the populists. A steady stream of newcomers poured into Seattle during the next year, many of them men led off by the construction crews, others drawn west by easy transportation, and the advertising pamphlets circulated by the railroads. They found few jobs. They joined the ranks of the unemployed and listened to the oratory of populists like Mary Kenworthy, who was belaboring the businessman's backers with such salty epithets as, quote, our dog-salmon aristocracy. In 1885, the threat of the people's ticket was so great that the businessman's group felt it necessary to call back into the political arena the town's most loved tycoon, blunt, foursquare old Henry Yesler, who 11 years earlier had spent a quiet and profitable year as mayor. Yesler was elected again, but there was nothing quiet about his second term. Hell broke loose over the Chinese question. And we'll stop right there. We're reading Murray Morgan's Skid Road, published in 1951 by Viking. My name's Felix Bennell. Join me next time for The Housebound Historian.